<laughs> the, the only one wearing a cheese head right now. If you got your Bibles with you tonight, open up to the book of Isaiah. And uh, we're going to continue to go through um, the final couple of chapters of Isaiah. <clears throat> we, uh, we stopped about, uh, about the time the prayer begins in chapter 63. So in chapter 63, beginning at verse 7, we've seen the return of Jesus Christ in that first part. We talked a little bit about it last week, how he's going to return, the battle of Armageddon, those things that we see prophetically uh, taking place. And, and then in response to that, we have what's known as the prayer of the remnant. And the prayer of the remnant is going to run from verse 7 of, of 63 to verse 12 in chapter 64. And uh, this is that, that cry. that the, the concept of the remnant is that idea of those people that no matter what, no matter what's happening, no matter how crazy the world is, no matter what's going on, they're following the Lord. And God always says... As you study the Old Testament, you'll see God constantly saying he always has a remnant. Always. Every place. Wherever there is the body. I mean, even when we look at the, the, uh, the, the church, the liberal church that, that maybe is in apostasy, the Lord would say, I have a remnant. There's, there's salt and light in those places. Maybe not a lot of salt and light, but there's salt and light. And here we see in this return of the Lord and Him coming to, 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 to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and to restore and rebuild Israel and to establish His kingdom that was promised way back in the beginning when Jesus was born. When we see those things coming, He lays out for us this prayer of the remnant. And the unfortunate part is we, we're, we're not going to have quite the stark contrast. So I'm going to back up and just read over those, the section of scripture we went over in uh, chapter 63, so that you can kind of get the sense of that contrast. Who is this who comes from Edom, in verse 1, who, with dyed garments from Basra? The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads a winepress? Well, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wandered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the people in mine anger and made them drunk in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. And then the prayer, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. The prayer of the remnant. You know, God's people, when we're in a right place with the Lord and we have really... You know, we're walking with Him. We're, we're allowing Him to, as we talked about this morning, mold us into His image. We're allowing the Word to speak to us and worship. And we're allowing the, 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 our prayers to shape us. And we're allowing <clears throat> suffering to be the hand of God in our life to mold us and make us into His image. Then we, our attitude will change just like the psalmist's attitude does in Scripture. You ever read the psalmist, you know, David, he's writing a psalm about God knock out all the teeth of my enemy. And then as he comes toward the end, the next thing you know, he just is enveloped in the love of God, in the, in the beauty of God, in the majesty of the Lord. That doesn't mean he still wants his enemies to triumph over him, but you can really sense and see the change of his heart. Because God's love, I mean, let's face it, God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, you know, that, that He is love. And those who love are born of God and know God, for God is love. We have that, that attitude in us. But guys, God is also bringing justice and, and judgment. And that day 
of his vengeance will come. People have been preaching about that day of vengeance of the Lord for for 2,000 years. We're at least 2,000 years closer to it than we were when it all started. Where our salvation, the time of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The point is, that day's coming, but God's people don't rejoice in that. We may long for it. We may long for justice to finally be served. We may long for those things. But what God's people, the, the real heart of God's people is the loving kindness of the Lord. What brings men to repentance? The scripture declares it's the goodness of God that brings men to repentance. It's the goodness of God. What do we see in the pages of Revelation? As we see in chapter 6 through 19, the tribulation poured out and all this judgment and, and wrath and people dying and wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and famine and all this stuff is poured out on the world. How many people repent? I don't know. All I know is the scripture says, and yet they would not Call upon the name of the Lord. Their heart did not change. Heart does not change. But the scripture declares when we come face to face with the goodness of God, that leads men to repentance. So the prayer of the remnant begins. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. I will mention what God has done for us. See, the, the, the writer's going to look back at how God met their needs all the way through. Looking at Israel, all the ways God watched over them, all the way God treated them like a shepherd, finding his lost sheep and, and guiding them and, and bringing them together in one place. He says, I'm going to remember the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercy. And we talked about it today. Listen, God is love. That's one of his intrinsic attributes. But we see that expressed to us in grace and mercy. The love of God is expressed to us in grace and mercy. And and so often people say, yeah, you know, it's like I'm reading about two different gods. No, when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's the same God. The same God of grace and mercy in the old as the God of grace and mercy in the new. The same God of vengeance in the old as the God of vengeance in the new. It's the same. God didn't get saved. God is perfect righteousness and justice and all of those things. But we find ourselves here in a, in a period of his grace. As the goodness of God is leading men to repentance. To come unto him. And he says, listen, I'm going to remember. What did he say? His mercies. His mercies. All the things, that, all the times God forgave his people. How many times God forgave you? Brings new light to it when we consider, you know, that Peter coming to, <coughs> coming to the Lord, he said, Lord, you know, how many times did I forgive my brother for the exact same sin? As many as seven times? He thought he was really going for it there, right? Jesus said, no, as many as 70 times 7. And you know, when we study the pages of Scripture, we discover that's exactly how long God forgave his people. 490 years. For the same thing. The picture is, the the concept is still forever. Because none of us are going to live more than 490 years, right? So... That should pretty much extinguish our lifespan. So that means as long as we're alive, we should be forgiving. But that attitude shows the grace and the mercy of God. That's his attitude toward us. And so as he's looking at this and he's seeing that day of vengeance come. And that day when, when, you know, in one day, a quarter of the population of the earth will cease to exist. In a day. I'm blown away when, when I was watching on the news. You guys all remember the tsunami, right? And it's like all of a sudden in like this moment in time, you know, more than 100,000 people died. And I'm, that just, just that number boggles my mind. Just that idea. Wow, I mean, such loss of life. Such, such sad stories. But in one day, a quarter of the earth's population, what's that at? 
Six billion? With six billion is the population, what's a quarter of six billion? Come on, where's my math whizzes? One and a half billion. Man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of lost lives. And God says, I don't glory in the destruction of the wicked. That's why he says I'm long-suffering. God's desire is not, just like any of us as parents. Which of us as parents wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, I just cannot wait to beat my child. I'm so excited about the opportunity to just give him a whooping. Some days, huh? <coughs> and, and, I, and God says that's his heart too. God, he will bring, he will bring that, that day of chastisement will come. But his heart is that the wicked would turn and live. That they would live. And so here we see the, the prayer, again, of the remnant, remembering God's deliverances, remembering God's love and his mercy. You see, that's the heart of those who follow the Lord. We know the day of vengeance is coming. But our heart is that love of God. The, the deliverance of God, the goodness of God that led, us, that led us to repentance. He says, now, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. Isn't that the way Father looks at his kids? We always have high hopes for our children. God's no different. Children who will, my son would never lie to me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> my son will lie right to my face. He's not here tonight, is he? <laughs> then I'm going to tell a story. I had him busted. Dead to rights. He didn't know it. He thought everything was good. Dad didn't know what had happened. But what he didn't know is the guy he had done this thing with had got busted by his parents. Told his parents everything. And they called me. And they said, you know what? Your son did, and they laid it all out for me. It's like, oh, man. I says, you know what? My son won't lie to me. Hmm. So I sat down with him, and I said, Cole. Now, I couldn't be any more honest. Cole, I just want you to know, I know everything. You have one chance to tell me what you did. I told him I knew. But he's not sure whether dad's bluffing or not. So he begins to, to spin his tail. And the, the bust that would have been just grew. Because I said, you had the one chance to come clean and you didn't do it. You didn't do it. Father has high hopes for his kids. High hopes that my children won't lie. That when they're trapped in that place, they don't. But you know what? A father's love is never extinguished. Even though that, that, that child who doesn't quite look as cute as he did when he was a baby, <coughs> that's, the, that's the part I still remember. Even when he lies right to my face, and I know I own him and... And I can't imagine that he would do such a thing. But nonetheless, even though he does that, I still have high hopes for him. I still desire to see that he succeed. That he be able to uh, experience everything that, that, that God has for him. And God's no different for us. Which of us, when he says, uh, I look at my children and say, oh, my children won't lie. Which of us? I mean, God's pretty sure that we're going to lie, right? I don't think it surprises him. But you see, again, it just speaks to his mercy and his loving kindness that he's, he still reaches out. The, the beauty for me, and I love the, the truth that God's not finished with Israel. The beauty for God not being finished with Israel is that all day long he reaches out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It's what Paul writes in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And if all day long he reaches out to them, when he says he reaches all day out for me, I know he does. I know he's not bummed when I mess up. Or, or not bummed to the point where he's not going to use me anymore, throw me away. That's it, Jackie. You had your last chance. Like we will. But God's full of loving kindness and of mercy. Children who will not lie. So listen, right here when he says it, I want you, don't want you to miss it in verse 8. For he said, surely they are my people, children who, are, who will not lie. What's the next line? So he became their 
Savior. Interesting, right? What do they, what do they need a Savior for if they're not going to lie? If they're going to do well. But you see the love and the expectation, right as he looks at his people, he says, so I'm going to be their Savior. I'm going to take care of them when they fail, when they fall, when they stumble. I'm going to be there. And in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Have you ever been in a place where you feel like God has no idea what I'm going through? What I'm struggling with? He can't possibly understand how I feel right now and the things I'm going through. But right here in Isaiah, he says, he says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. I mean, he, he, he felt it. Those of us who are parents can understand it. You know that old thing that we say to our kids, going to hurt me worse than it hurts you? Well, not exactly. It's going to hurt different. It's going to hurt different. Like my little grandbaby, my little granddaughter, yeah, there's never coming a day when I'm whooping her. I'm grandpa now. Just come to grandpa. And I'll wipe away the big alligator tears and it's all going to be okay. At least I say that now. But we'll see. When she's 13, all bets are off. But up to that point, you know, it's that, it's that idea. So that when our children go through things, aren't we afflicted? I remember when uh, so many years ago, I met Kathy when she was 15. And uh, we probably broke up, I don't even know. Maybe 10 times in high school, you know. You know how high school kids do that dumb thing they do. So we broke up, and I remember it'd be, <clears throat> I'd be all mopey and whiny, you know, and, and mom and dad would say, what's wrong, what's wrong? Oh. You know, life is over. Kathy broke up with me. Of course, when I broke up with her, life was a little better, but, you know. <laughs> but I remember one of the times Kathy saying, that a story from her dad, Kathy was in her room crying one of the times we had broke up and, and Kathy's mom told her, you know, your dad would stand right outside your door with little tears in his eyes, just wishing he could comfort you, but not knowing what to do. So he'd just stand there and listen. To me, that's a great picture of in all your affliction, I was afflicted. When God, when God's vengeance and justice and, and that stuff comes and, and God's, God's children are, are hurt or, or afflicted in that. God's afflicted too. He, he's not a, that, that unknowable God that we cannot relate to and doesn't want to relate to us. But he, he's the opposite of that. He wants to relate to us and he does. Like that father standing outside our door while we're crying whose heart's broken. But who also at the same time knows this affliction is not going to last. Right? doesn't last forever. Just for a period of time. And he goes on to say, And the angel of his presence saved them. Now that concept, the angel of his presence, that's <coughs> excuse me, the same concept as, as you go through the Old Testament, you read the phrase, the angel of the Lord. Capital A, angel, capital L-O-R-D. It's the angel of his presence. Now angel simply means, doesn't mean guy with wings. Angel simply means the messenger. The messenger. And the messenger of Yehovah, or Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, the very name of God, that's what that means when you see capital L-O-R-D. The messenger of Almighty God is the Word. And the Word was God and is God. The Word is Jesus Christ. The angel of His presence... The angel of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, all through the Old Testament, is what we call a pre-incarnate Christ. When people would say, I saw God and I live, who did they see? The Bible says no man can see God at any time and live. Who did they see? They saw Jesus Christ. Why? Because God, the fullness of God is in Jesus Christ, but he is that part of God, the whole part of God that we can relate to, that we can see, that we can touch that we can feel that we come to know what god is who god is through him and the scripture calls him in, in the old testament the angel of his presence that presence is the idea the messenger of the shekinah the cloud the glory the word of the invisible god 
It's the same thing that they're saying as they're, as they're saying that in the Hebrew, the angel of the Lord points to Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Christ. And in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and he carried them all the days of old. When I read that, I'm thinking of, of that footprints poem. I, I love that footprints poem. Anybody ever heard the second one? I love the second one too. Footprints poem, you know, well, the second footprints poem goes like this. I had a dream, and in my dream, I saw all my life pass before me as footprints in the sand. And as I was looking and pondering these footprints in the sand, the Lord came to me and he said, he said, well, do you understand what you see? And I said, oh, I don't know, Lord. I, I think I understand what I see. And he says, well, then my precious child, tell me, what do you see? Well, I see in the beginning of my life and deep gashes and cuts and, and grooves in the sand. And I see myself darting off to the left and off to the right and all around. And, and I was lost. I didn't know where to go or, or where to be or how to be. And it just seemed like my, my footprints have no purpose. And the Lord said, you've seen well, my child. What else do you see? What a, in the next section, I noticed that, that you, 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 you entered into my life, and all of a sudden, all the chaos, all the craziness of my life, it just begins to, to, to funnel down to, to two sets of footprints in the sand, walking step for step with each other. I was learning what it was to walk with you. And the Lord said, you've seen well, my child. What else do you see? Well, then I, I noticed that, that even as we had those two steps, as I'm walking beside you, I noticed that slowly the two became one, the, those two sets of footprints. And I was learning to abide in you, and, and you abide in me. And then there was just one footprint in the sand. And the Lord said, you've seen well, my child. What else do you see? I said, oh, Lord, I don't know. I don't understand the end. It goes back to like it was in the beginning. I mean, footprints all over the place and, and deep gashes and cuts and, 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 and just a big mess at the end. Lord, did I fall away? And the Lord said, oh, my precious child, no. You didn't fall away. That's where we danced. Learning to take the walk with Christ to that point. What's he say here? He says, listen, guys. I bore them and I carried them all the days of old. I redeemed them. Don't forget that idea of redemption means to be purchased from something to something. It's not just enough. It's, it would be enough to just be purchased. But he purchased us from a life of destruction when we were dead in our sin. And then translated or transferred us, lock, stock, and barrel, to the kingdom of light. So that... Our walk with Christ at some point becomes the dance. And that's what he's laying out here for, for the example that he's given us with his relationship with the nation of Israel and what he's doing for them and his desire for them. But look in verse 10, he says, but they rebelled. But they rebelled. I mean, he did all that and they rebelled. So do we. So do our kids. Wouldn't we like to make all our choices for him? I, I, you know, <coughs> Gary and Lindsay back there with Lydia. Right now, Lydia is going to be good. And she'll do whatever you say. And, and hopefully forever. Hopefully forever. And when they're little, you can really guide and direct them, right? But there does come a time when they make their own decision. And what a heartbreak it is. Well, it could also be a joy... I'm still holding out for the joy part. But sometimes it's a heartbreak when they choose the hard road. They choose maybe a more difficult path than what I would choose for them. But you know what I rest in? Even as they choose that and, and, and on one side I'm, I'm like close to panic thinking, oh my gosh, you know, because, you know, sometimes we'll run way down the road and, and I start thinking, how can I be in eternity with the Lord and my children not be there? I mean, that, I'll, I'll run down that path sometimes. And then the Lord will speak to me. And, oh, Jackie, I love your kids more than you do. And I got to do some things in their life. 
And you were there to shelter them until now. But now, it's time for them to have their walk with me. The deep gashes in the sand. But ultimately, God's desire is to bring them all the way to the dance, right? All the way to that point. God wants to do that. But they rebelled. They rebelled. They, they break his heart. So he turned himself against them as an enemy. And he fought against them. But look at verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old. Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Who led them by the right hand of Moses with a glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name? The Lord says, Then I remembered. I remembered the ones who walked with me and the joys that we had. Was it, was it always a joy with Moses in the children of Israel? <laughs> was it always a positive day? It wasn't. There were struggles. There were hardships. There was hurt. But the end, the end result, it's good to make for himself an everlasting name who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. The idea is that, that God led them by the hand like a horse in open country. It was, it was easy for the Lord to guide the children of Israel through the wilderness, to bring them through the Red Sea, to take them out of bondage and deliver them into a victorious life in a promised land. And that's the same thing God does for us. He takes us from bondage to sin. And then we enter into a walk with Him that takes us through a wilderness journey that lasts however long it lasts. Until we enter into the victorious Christian life where the Spirit of God is moving and working in us and through us and God's doing amazing things. The same journey that He did with them, He does with us. The exact same journey. In a spiritual sense, He's accomplishing those same things with us, leading us, guiding us, directing us, and making for himself an everlasting name. You know, <clears throat> in my office I have all these dumb plaques that they made me take from the years I coached football. I think, I don't know, eight of the ten years I think I was, was coach of the year. I think we only didn't win league one time in my tenure, we went to state all these times. All these, <clears throat> these accolades, so my trophies are those plaques. But you realize that God's trophy is you, your changed life, what you were and what you are by the grace of God. You are his trophy. And as he's looking here, he's saying, hey, you made for him an everlasting name as he guides us through. To what end? That we might not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley, in verse 14, <clears throat> and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Hey, God is showing everyone else what he's able to do through you and what he does in you and what he accomplishes in your life and how he changes your life from where it was going to where it is. We all have a God story. We all have a, a story that says, this is where I was going. And then God came into my life. And now this is where I am. And that's where I'm going. And God says he does that all to, to his glory. That people would look at you and see what God can do in the life of someone who surrendered to him. And that's... That's how his remnant glories. That's how his remnant cries out to the Lord. Look down from heaven in verse 15 and see your habitation, holy and glorious. <clears throat> Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Now the remnant is saying, listen, look down at us. Look at the things we're going through. Don't you see? You ever feel like that when you call out to the Lord? Like, God, were you, have you not been watching for a couple of weeks? Because my life is like circling the drain. Where are you? Is your hand restrained from me? Hey, the scripture does call out that, that God's hand can be restrained from us. I mean, very specifically, the Lord says, when a marital relationship's not right, our prayers are hindered. 
Malachi chapter 2, the Lord says, You cover my altar with tears because you don't treat each other right. You're, not, you're, you're dealing treacherously with the with wife of your youth. So there's a, a possibility that God's hand is restrained, but there's also the possibility that God's doing a work in us. And we were talking a little bit today about what it's like for the, for the potter working on the, the clay. You know, he puts that lump of clay on the wheel and he spins it. And Jeremiah chapter 18 says, the Lord's the potter and we're the clay. And he spins that wheel and he makes, he digs out all the garbage. He makes this great thing. But then when he's done making the pot, it doesn't stay on the wheel. It goes into the fire. The Lord says that we are perfected in the furnace of affliction. You know, that's not probably one of my favorite verses. I'd rather stay out of the furnace of affliction. Sometimes, like that pot going into the furnace of affliction, we're screaming the whole time, Lord, where are you? But God says, I'm right here. I'm right here. And, and we know that when that clay pot is fired, when it goes through the fire, what happens to it? It, it becomes like porcelain. It gets hard. It develops strength. It's able to be used. All because it passed through the fire. And sometimes that's what God's doing. And we call up to him, where are you, Lord? Why, why does this hurt so much? But it's good. I remember when my, when my oldest boy was little, <clears throat> he got a hold of an X-Acto knife. You guys know what an X-Acto knife is? Like a box cutter, only deadlier. They're crazy little tools. I don't even remember what I ever used that thing for. But he got a hold of this X-Acto knife, and he was maybe two, three... Four, maybe, you know, but he knew he wasn't supposed to have it. And we just bought a brand new house. And he's in his bedroom with his X-Acto knife cutting the carpet. Which he never got in trouble for. Now that I think of it. I might call him when I get home. But he's cutting the carpet with his X-Acto knife. And he's, you know, he's not very good with it, obviously. A three or four year old is probably not very good with a knife. And as he's cutting the carpet, it slips. And he takes that X-Acto knife and he just buries it in the meat of his hand, the meaty part of, his, of the palm of his hand under his thumb. Just buries it in it. And then, you know, pulls it out and blood is going everywhere. And Kathy, God love her, Kathy, she is so positive and wonderful as long as her kids aren't bleeding. Her kids are bleeding, man. It is on like Donkey Kong. She is losing her mind. Running around the house. She's screaming. I'm in the other room. And <clears throat> what is going on? And I come out. And all I see is Kathy's holding JC. And Cole is just a baby, a little baby, walking underneath JC. And everybody's got blood on them. I don't even know who's bleeding yet. <laughs> blood everywhere. And she's, oh, he cut his hand. He cut so. So, you know, I, I, that's, when I, that's when dad's calm. So I, I got something, I got a, a, a wrap to put around his hand, put some pressure on it, stop the bleeding. Told Kathy, ride in the back of the car with him, we'll go to the, to the emergency room, he's going to have to get stitches. You know, if I could have butterflied it, I would have, but I, I didn't think it was going to keep. So, so we go, we go to, the, to the doctor, and Kathy's in the back seat, and she still says to this day, that I speed everywhere I go. But on that day, I was just creeping along. She's in the back, just letting me have it. Like, what are you going so slow for? Hurry up. You know, she, she, so if you ever see her around one of her kids getting hurt, just be aware. I warned you. So <coughs> we get to the hospital. And when we pull into the hospital, the, the, the doctor looks at it, you know, takes the thing off. It starts bleeding right away. He's like, oh, yeah, we're we're going to need to put stitches in this. And little kids are, don't sit still for stitches. So he said, I'm going to give them a shot. And you know they got to do that shot right in the wound, which wasn't very good. And he said, I don't have anybody to help me, so Dad, I need you to hold his arm down. So I hold down his arm, and he gives him the shot, which did not make J.C. very happy. So now he's screaming, and he's kind of agitated and freaking out. And the doc says, okay, I can do the stitches, but you got to hold them still. So I had to lay across his chest. And he's screaming in my ear, 
Daddy, help me. Daddy, help me. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. Well, I'm holding his arm and I'm watching the doc do the stitches. And the doc keeps saying, this doesn't hurt him. I'm telling you, it doesn't hurt him. Because he's pretty sure I was picking up a stool and beating him to death with that stool if that, if that was hurting him. But while he's saying that, while he's doing that, all I'm thinking is, it's for his good. But he doesn't know it. It's for his good. It's something that he needs to have done. But he doesn't know that. He just knows it hurts and I don't like it. And that's how life is for us sometimes. All we know is that hurts and I don't like it. But God, you know, he says this is what you need. This is something that has to happen in your life. And we have to trust him. We have to believe that God knows what he's doing. That God understands what's happening and that it's for a purpose. And look what he says, because you see that same, you see the tone change again in verse 16. Doubtless, you are our father. On one hand, he's saying, where are you? Is your hand restrained from me? And then he says, doubtless, you are my father. You are my father. Not very many times, guys, in the Old Testament that God is described as father. A lot of times in the New Testament. Not very many times in the old. So when it occurs, we really make notice of it. Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us, even though Abraham didn't know that that the nation of Israel would become this nation and all these things would happen, he knew the promises of God, but he never saw the fulfillment. In the book of Hebrews it said, he lived his life as though seeing that which was not able to be seen because he believed what God said was true. So he says, even though Abraham, even though Abraham didn't, uh, didn't know us, didn't acknowledge us, you, O oh Lord, are our Father and our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. I love that verse. For you, O oh Lord, Yahweh, you are our Father, our Redeemer, that's the word goel, From everlasting is your name. Reminds me of another place in Isaiah that talks about the Messiah. And he will be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. You will call his name Emmanuel. Which is God with us. Looking at Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the one that changes everything. Nevertheless, you're our father. Even though Abraham never knew me, you're still my father. You're still my redeemer. You're my redeemer and you're my redeemer forever. For everlasting is your name. Everlasting in the Hebrew, it means beyond the vanishing point. You ever try to think so far back that you can't remember anything else? You know, you come to that point. Everlasting means infinitely past that. In the past and future. Everlasting. Everlasting. Oh Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. Hey, God's people are going to pray this prayer. And when I say God's people, I mean the nation of Israel. The nation that rejected Jesus Christ is going to call for him. And they will be saved. That's what Paul says to us in Romans 9, 10, 11. All of Israel will be saved. Why? Because they're eventually going to recognize Jesus was the Messiah and they're going to cry out for him. And we read last week what happens when he comes. That's the first part of chapter 63. He comes. And the day of vengeance has come when he comes, when he returns. On that day, when they cry out for him, your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries... excuse me, have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. He's saying, listen, the the days are, are so bad that we're in bondage again. They're in bondage. At this time, they were going into bondage to Babylon. At the time of Christ, they were in bondage to Rome. Israel's history of ruling and reigning was relatively small you got david and solomon and a few other kings here and there through it but shortly after solomon they're split between northern and southern kingdom 
And really prior to David, Saul never developed the nation into where David brought it. And David never brought it to the place where Solomon brought it. And then it was never there again. But David was made a promise that one of his, from his line, would sit on the throne of David forever. He's sitting on the throne of David today. Or at least awaiting sitting on the throne of David. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for that day when the nation of Israel cries out, Come, save us. And then he's going to come. Then he'll be there. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. You hear him. You know, the desire to have him in their presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look. What's the awesome thing? Look what it says next. You did awesome things for which we did not look. You came down. By the way, that's past tense. So the prophet's looking in the future and saying it in the past. You did an awesome thing that we didn't even understand. You came down. See, the nation of Israel is going to recognize him. They will understand through the 144,000, the witness of the 144,000, through the two witnesses they're witnessing in Jerusalem, through the works that God's doing in their heart. They will come to realize. And they will say, you came down. You were here. And he is coming down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you. Does that sound familiar? 1 Corinthians 2.9 Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men the things that God has planned for those who love Him. Here in Isaiah, you see that, that same concept. Men haven't heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you. He's the only one who does what? Who acts for the one that waits for him. Who acts for the one who waits for him. What does the Bible tell us about those who wait on the Lord? It says they'll renew their strength. It also says they'll renew their their strength as the eagle. The the eagle being renewed when the eagle goes through the, the, the molt that an eagle can go through. And the, and the things that occurs in that animal. And he says that God works at, renews, just as the eagle is renewed through that process, God renews those who wait on him. Well, they renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings of eagles. They'll, they'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. For those who what? Wait on the Lord. But keep in mind, that word wait is an action word. Wait. The, the idea is those who wait like a waiter on the Lord. Who are like Mary sitting at his feet. Those who are seeking him. Those who are, who <coughs> are living for him. Those who wait on the Lord. Those who are meeting that need. Doing those things. Who act for the one who waits for him. Not just sitting back going, I wonder if God's coming. But actually actively Waiting upon the Lord. He goes on and says, In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. Prayer of the remnant. And he is going to come. What did he say in the beginning of chapter 63? My name is righteousness and I am what? Mighty to save. And as people cry out in their prayer, the prayer of the remnant, we need to be saved. Even so, come Lord Jesus, we need to be saved. He says in verse 5, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry for we have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. We need to be saved. 
See, God has a righteous requirement. I mean, the scriptures are, are perfectly clear. God says, be ye perfect as I am perfect. That's his requirement. The soul that sins shall die. That means must. The soul who sins must die. God cannot abide sin in his presence. But he also loved us who are sinners. So he sent his son to become sin for us. That we could become the righteousness of God. He came and paid that total price. And we have to recognize, hey, that's what I am. God does not just look lightly upon sin. We each, before we come to salvation, are sinners in the hands of an angry God. You don't think God's angry at sin? Look what he did to his own son who became sin. What will it be like if we don't stand with his son? If that's, what he, if that's the wrath that was poured out on his own son on that cross, what's it like? What wrath do we face apart from Jesus Christ? <clears throat> he is indeed angry, for we have sinned continuously, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and our righteousness as filthy rags. Most people don't talk about what that is because it's pretty vile. But in essence, it's used menstrual cloths. That's what he's talking about. Our righteousness is used menstrual cloths. As filthy rags. As filthy rags. That's the best we can do without the Lord. So when someone says, how are you getting to heaven? How do you know you're going to be in heaven? How do you know that you're going to be saved? Well, I'm a good person. Really? Because Isaiah said our best is as filthy used menstrual cloths. I don't think you're getting in. I don't think there's an entrance there. There's no such thing. And in Romans he says there's none good. No, not one. There's none who seeks after God. There's no one that has that attitude, that heart, that on their own, apart from God in their life, is able to achieve salvation. And that's what he's saying here, our best. And we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Our iniquities, our sin. Man, don't, don't you see the lives of people that are are carried away by their sin, how, they, how it's just like the wind blew them away. You know, they're, they're all wrapped up in that thing, whatever, <clears throat> whatever it is, that sin, that issue in their life, and that the wind has just, just blown them over. I mean, they, they, they look like they've been blown away. They're all disheveled and messed up and tumbling in the wind, like a tumbleweed blown down the road that has no idea where it's going. The Lord says, that's what our iniquities have done. The remnant saying this prayer, my iniquities have blown me away. And I am off track and lost and I'm out like a, like a tumbleweed blowing in the wind. My best is filthy rags and, and my sins have blown me away. And there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. Fellowship is broken. God says no one seeks after God. We have this idea, this picture sometimes. We come to faith in Jesus Christ that we're holding on to him. But that's not what we're doing. He's holding on to us. That's how come I know we are kept. Because he doesn't get weak. He won't let go. I won't be lost because he's not strong enough to save me. He's holding on to me. He's saying there's no one who reaches up to God to hold on to God. Maybe the, in, in, in our hearts we have this intent. I want to I know you, Lord. I want to cling to you. I want to hold on to you. But we can't do it. We can't. Any more than when I play with my sons when they were little that they could hold on to dad. Remember when we grab our our kids and spin around in a circle. Do you ever do that? And and you just watch their little bodies come higher and higher, going around. And the kids, I don't know, kids when they're young are immune to that dizzy thing. 
Because I do it about two times and I'm ready to puke right there. <clears throat> but they're always coming up, do it again, Dad, do it again, do it again. And we spin it. But when I do that, it, it, are they trusting in their, their ability to hold on to me? No way. If they had to hold on to me, how long would it last? <sighs> yeah, not very long. But I hold on to them. That's what God does to us. There's no one that, that holds, that reaches out to you. For you have hidden your face from us. We're, our sins have broken fellowship with God. We cannot know God because of our sins. That's why he sent his son. So that we could know God through his son. So we could have that relationship renewed. Your face is hidden from us. And have consumed us because of our iniquities. Don't ever lose sight of the truth. The truth that God hates sin. He hates it. Not mild dislike. Utterly, completely hates sin. So when we dabble with it, we're blowing it. Because God hates it. He loves us. But he hates sin. Absolutely detests it. For we have been consumed because of our iniquities. Our condition invites judgment. But God, who is rich in his mercy, and the love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together in Christ. God changes everything because he loved us. But now, O oh Lord... You are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. That's the same thing as saying you are sovereign. That's something we could learn to do more often. I mean, I'm guilty the same way I've shared with you before of thinking that I had so much control at some point in my life that this one choice utterly changed everything in my life. The only choice that utterly changes everything in your life is a choice to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Anything else? And when you do that, God's sovereign. God's working in every single aspect. I'm a lump of clay. When's the last time you saw a lump of clay form itself into something? Unless you're an evolutionist, it doesn't happen. We could do an experiment anytime you want. Take a lump of clay and set it outside. Let's see what it becomes. A harder lump of clay, a softer lump of clay, but it's not going to be anything unless a potter does something with it. And that's what he's saying here. We are the clay, you are the potter. God, you are sovereign in our life, and all we are the work of your hands. Isn't that what we studied today? For we are his workmanship, his poema, the work that God is rotting in our life, we are his workmanship. You, we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Isn't it beautiful that in the psalm, the psalmist would write, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgression from us. The forgiveness of sins. Nor remember the iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We all are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire. We see that destruction take place in 70 AD. But you know at the time Isaiah is writing and they're facing the Babylonian captivity, the temple was destroyed again because God's people were disobedient through jeremiah the prophet god's going to say just give up go into captivity accept your punishment and live because if you raise a sword if you fight against what i'm trying to do in your life you're gonna die and they kept fighting and they kept fighting and they kept fighting and the temple was destroyed and we can't even begin to understand what that temple looked like. That was Solomon's temple. I mean, all the best they can do is draw you a picture 
of what they think Solomon's temple might have looked like based on the materials that he used. But keep in mind, at the time of Solomon, gold and silver were so plentiful, they stopped counting it. When's the last time you had so much money you stopped counting? Now, I don't count the coins in my coin jar because it just bugs me to have to do that. You guys have one of those? The little jar you throw your change in? No? You're missing out. It's such a surprise when you actually have some in there. (laughs) We always say, well, let it get full. You know, the funny thing is it never fills up. At some point we get in there and somebody steals all the quarters. And, you know, that's how it is, right? But here, you know, the, the idea that that the, the Lord lays out for us, you know, that, that He's going to meet us, that He's going to accomplish His perfect work in our life, that we have become the, the work of His hands, that He's doing all this work, and that that temple, the temple that Jesus said as they walked by the temple of Zion and they saw the, the beauty of that temple, His disciples said, hey, Lord, check that out. And Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left on another. That was just 30-some years from his crucifixion. Still today, you go to Israel, you stand in the Tropian Valley, you still see, you'll still see one stone upon another, upon another, tumbled off the top of the Temple Mount, just like Jesus said it would be. Not one stone left on another. Today, the Jews all go to the Western Wall to pray. And it's not the Western Wall of the Temple. It's the western wall of the foundation stone of the mountain that the temple was on. Why do they go there? Because in that one spot, they're as close as they can get to the Holy of Holies, where the Holy of Holies was. But if you come to Israel with me, we'll walk right up to it. We'll stand around the stone, talk about why... We believe that's the spot where the Holy of Holies was. Show you the evidence for it. Unique opportunities. But you see, that temple didn't have to be destroyed for them, but because of their iniquity, because of their desire not to be obedient, not to follow the Lord, the temple is burned up with fire. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Prayer of the remnant. How long, O Lord, will you wait? The answer is in the next chapter. And we're not doing it tonight. Chapter 65 is the Lord's answer to the cry, the prayer of the remnant. Well, tonight, we have an opportunity to offer up our prayers, to set aside this time just to seek the face of the Lord, to just be quiet before Him. To allow God to speak to our hearts and to allow us to speak to the heart of God. In this time, I invite your welcome to just pray quietly or, you know, pray in turn aloud. The only thing we ask is that you be sensitive of other people's desire to pray and and keep your prayers to a reasonable time. And in that, you know, if the Lord gives you a a word you want to share, some scripture God's laid on your heart. You know, as we're just all seeking the Lord, I invite you to do it. I invite you to share that, that scripture. I invite you to, to share in that prayer that we can be gathered together and agree with the Lord. The Bible says where two or three are in prayer and agree, that thing will be established. God will do that thing. So it's a unique opportunity we have. Let's seek the face of the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time and the opportunity that we have as we just come before you in this place. Lord, we ask God that, Father, by your Spirit, you would meet us here. Father, that we would just come to love the opportunities that we have to allow your word to help us grow and become who you're calling us to be and Father, that we would desire to allow you by your word and in prayer and through worship and in suffering to to be made into your image. God, I pray that you would just do amazing things. 
Father, we lay this time out to you and just ask that your spirit would move among us, that you would guide us and lead us. Father, that we, even as Mary, would desire just to sit at your feet and gaze at your splendor. I look so forward to the day when it will no longer be through a glass darkly that I see your face, but face to face. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come.